Welcome to Confronting the Madness, a podcast exploring the psychological issues of our time. My name is Mark Corthius. I'm the host of Confronting the Madness. In this episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Alan Francis. Dr. Francis is an American psychiatrist best known for chairing the DSM-4 task force and later roundly criticizing the DSM-5 and American psychiatry for their roles in manufacturing mental illnesses and the epidemic of overdiagnosis. Dr. Francis has been the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Duke University, where he currently resides as Professor Emeritus. Dr. Francis has also written a number of books, including Saving Normal, An Insider's Revolt Against Out-of-Control Diagnosis, the DSM-5, and Big Pharma, and also Twilight of American Sanity, A Psychiatrist Analyzes the Age of Trump, Trigger Warning, and lastly, Essentials of Psychiatric Diagnosis. Dr. Francis is an outspoken critic of the industrial medical complex and the marginalization and mistreatment of disenfranchised consumers of medical care. In this episode, Dr. Francis and I discuss the shortcomings of the DSM, the overdiagnosis problems in psychiatry, resilience in the age of COVID-19, and the emergence and cautionary tales of psychedelic medicine. And now I bring to you Dr. Alan Francis. Uh, Dr. Francis, thank you so much for joining me today on uh, Confronting the Madness. Confronting the Madness has no agenda. We have no ideological bend. The podcast is really just about exploring psychological issues of our time with people who are intellectually curious about trying to collectively come to grips with our own minds in ways that can potentially benefit society. So just quickly for listeners who don't know, Dr. Francis is an American psychiatrist best known for chairing the DSM-4 task force and later roundly criticizing the DSM-5 and American psychiatry for their roles in manufacturing mental illnesses and the epidemic of overdiagnosis. He was also previously chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Duke University, where, is he, where he is currently Professor Emeritus. And you're also an outspoken critic of the industrial medical complex and the marginalization and mistreatment of the disenfranchisement disenfranchised consumers of medical care. I did just want to say, though, um, as, uh, as, along with writing a number of books, um, I did want to talk to you specifically about your first book, Saving Normal, An Insider's Revolt Against Out-of-Control Diagnosis, the DSM-5 and Big Pharma. Um, I did want to note at the onset, so you didn't have to, um, at the onset of your book, you did note that Psychiatry is a noble and essential profession, sound at its core, and extremely effective when done well. Psychi psychiatry's outcomes match or exceed what is achieved by most other medical specialties. So question for you, doctor. A lot of listeners to this podcast may not even know what the DSM is, and I'm hoping you can give an overview of the DSM and why it is such a powerful and potentially dangerous manual for uh, those affected by mental illness. In, in the early 70s, there was an intriguing study using videotape, which was then pretty new, believe it or not, to compare <laughs> the uh, diagnostic habits of psychiatrists in the U.S. with those of psychiatrists in England. And so a, a bunch of tapes were made of, of sample patients shown to British psychiatrists and American psychiatrists they saw the same symptoms, but they came up with radically different diagnoses. Mm -hmm. So in the U.S., schizophrenia was the popular diagnosis for the very same patient who in England would be diagnosed as having mood disorder. What this proved, and, and uh, there was lots of evidence around it so that this was not the, the only study that proved this, but what it proved was that the psychiatrists didn't agree. They were speaking different languages. It was a babel. Um, and that's an intolerable position because it means that you can't do research because you, you'll disagree on what you're researching. Clinicians can't discuss cases in a way that makes sense because they're speaking different languages. They're not working off the same page in how they make diagnosis. So DSM started out as a fairly simple effort to increase the reliability of diagnosis. Mm -hmm. If you could say, set out the symptoms, the list of symptoms for each diagnosis, and thresholds for each diagnosis that theoretically at least you'd get psychiatrists to speak the same language work off the same page 
and agree on what they're seeing. And then that's the beginning of a conversation between psychiatrists. It's a, a way that you can train um, n- new people in the field so that they speak the same language. And it also allows for a, a research clinical interface that the person in the research studies diagnosed the same way someone would be diagnosed in the office. Right. It reduced the arbitrary, idiosyncratic, every man for himself, free-for-all that existed before DSM-3. And so the idea was simple. Let's just create a list of diagnoses, a list of criteria for each of those diagnoses, and we'll set arbitrary, admittedly arbitrary thresholds. And it's not as if we're explaining the disorder. There's nothing explanatory in any of the DSM. Mm-hmm. It's just a description, but at least the people will be using the same descriptions. We were shocked at how um, powerful the reaction was to DSM. We thought we were doing a simple job. We didn't realize that it was part of a cultural revolution that within the field, it it fit very nicely into the uh, biological model of mental illness. Right. Because it was so simple. And the... um, Outside the field, there was a lot of interest in, in um, psychiatric diagnosis that we weren't even aware of. So that people who used to discuss what their dreams meant the night before were now discussing their diagnoses. Anytime that you do something that may have a valuable, be a valuable addition, you also have to take into account the possibility of unintended consequences and side effects. And I think that the problem with DSM that haunts us still was that instead of being seen as just a clinical language and a guideline, it was taken as a kind of Bible mm-hmm. and treated as if it explained the illness, not just described it, as if people had a disorder. People don't have schizophrenia. They meet criteria for schizophrenia, but it was right. taken to literally describe real-life diseases rather than be just a, a construct that allowed us to speak the same language. And in the process, we lost psychotherapy to some degree as a research topic. Mm-hmm. And we uh, have focused way too much on um, biological research. Mm-hmm. Um, the brain research that's been done since DSM, DSM facilitated that research, has spent tens of billions of dollars and hasn't helped a single patient. Mm-hmm. Whereas things, psychosocial interventions that are very important for people to get better, they're not funded anymore. So there were many side effects of the DSM being taken too seriously, too much medication being used. And I, I guess we'll get to that in further questions. Yeah. And and just one of the things that haunts me, um, I just had Ann Harrington on the podcast who wrote a history of the psychiatry's troubled search for the biology of mental illness. And, you know, I was the CEO of the Mental Health Foundation here in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and thought we were doing some good work funding projects at a very, very small relative level from a funding perspective. And I got to the end of Anne's uh, book, and it was a quote by Tom Insel, um, germane to exactly your point about how, you know, he was the director of the NIMH for 13 years. They spent something in the order of $20 billion, primarily on neuroscience um, and the biology of mental illness. And they didn't reduce suicide, hospitalization visits, and the recovery of tens of millions of patients. And, and so that kind of hit me right in the heart where, you know, you're a young, idealistic uh, mental health advocate thinking that because the bio, biological story has some cachet to it. Um, and But when I read that, it just it set me back because um, the brain is such a complex construct that I think we were probably naive in trying to think that we could understand the underlying symptomology of a lot of these uh, illnesses. Anyways, the brain is the most complicated thing in the known universe. And, and genetics is, is even more complicated. We only have about 20,000 genes, but we, we have almost 100 billion neurons, mm-hmm. each of those connected to a, another thousand or so neurons. They're firing hundreds of times a second, and there are hundreds of neurotransmitters. The idea that there'd be any simple answer to any of the mental disorders coming from neurobiology or from genetics never made sense. And we've spent 20, by now, probably $30 billion proving that there'll be no simple, we don't have a single biological marker for any of the psychiatric disorders after 40 years of intense research. Meantime, we've forgotten the patients. 
Mm-hmm. So the people living in the streets, there are 250,000 homeless mentally ill in the U.S. There are 350,000 mentally ill in prisons. They're only because we provide so few services and almost no research on how to keep them in the community. And in the uh, 1970s, there was a 60s and 70s, a very exciting time in American psychiatry. The idea was we could take people who were in snake pit mental hospitals Mm-hmm. neglected, dirty, smelly, horrible mm-hmm. place. With the Kennedy Initiative for Community Mental Health and with the availability of medications, there was a great hope at that point that the, these people could live decent lives. And it's proven around the world they can. But in the United States, under the Reagan administration, the money was taken away from the community mental health centers. The states had previously been spending a lot of money on state hospitals Instead mm-hmm. of spending that money on community facilities and housing, they've opened up tons of prisons. Yeah. And our patients who previously used to have psychiatric care, the cops don't even bother taking them to an emergency room because they know that nothing will happen. They'll be either let out on the street or they'll have to take them to jail afterwards. And so cops are now first responders. Part of why cops shoot people so quickly, they're afraid. Guns mm-hmm. and mental illness terrify them. And the um, people are, are now either left to their own devices on the street or put into horrible dungeons, snake pit hospitals were nothing compared to prisons. And this is the great failure of psychiatry during our time that we have not been allowed and we have not, I think, advocated strongly enough for the kind of decent, humane community care that actually works in the countries that do it. Yeah. And it was shocking to me that the the top three providers of mental health services in the United States are jails. Um, so that's, that says it all right there. Question for you about your decision to chair the DSM four task force. And again, let me just say for listeners, because uh, so diagnostic statistic manual for mental health disorder. So um, a way by which that we can uh, you use a manual as a guide to try to figure out what's what's wrong with an individual. You were asked to chair the DSM-4 task force to make some refinements to that manual. And in your book, uh, Saving Normal, uh, you highlighted how it was a tap on the shoulder by a single individual. And you, you juxtaposed that against the rigor that you had to go through in order to become to the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Duke University. And I'm wondering why it's the case that such an important manual that has impacts far and wide across a number of different spheres um, took such little consideration towards how they chose someone, not to say you were a bad choice, but just to say that, you know, that doesn't seem as though that would be the way in which one would go about choosing the leadership of that task. Well, my joke about it is that uh, there were very few people dumb enough to want to do it. (laughs) But I think that um, the the DSM-3 had expanded the diagnostic system somewhat unwittingly. DSM-3R, which was a revision of it, had expanded it even more. And I had been um, against that. And I from early in my career, I felt we were over-treating and, and over-diagnosing people. Mm-hmm. I think they saw me as one person who could probably best contain the over-diagnosis and the uh, diagnostic exuberance and the inflation of the system. I think that's one of the reasons I was chosen. Also, I had had psychoanalytic training, and the psychotherapists were the ones most unhappy with the DSM, and maybe it was thinking that someone who came from that field would be able to mediate the um, disagreements better than someone who was seen as uh, more strictly biological. Um, I, I, I think that the, the, there's a larger point here, and that is that you can never trust a specialty group with the task of defining the diagnostic system or the treatment guidelines for its mm-hmm. particular specialty. Mm-hmm. That all experts in the field have inherent conflicts of interest some of these are financial, the getting of grants, the uh, how popular treatment will be will affect very much the finances of a particular specialty. But even worse are the intellectual and emotional conflicts of interest. So if you're a psychiatrist, you're going to have pet psychiatric diagnoses. Yeah. If you're a surgeon, you're going to like particular forms of surgery. 
uh, if you're a diabetologist, you're going to have particular biases based on the fact that you've worked in the field very intensely. So experts are, are very knowledgeable in a very narrow area, but they're terrible at judging how their decisions will be played out in the real world, that there's nothing more different than a research clinic and a, a clinical program. And right. that very often they'll make suggestions that may make sense in their own hands, but will be absolutely disastrous in, in a, average practice. That if they're working in a research clinic, they'll have hours and hours to evaluate every patient. They'll have a whole bunch of rating scales that they'll be doing on every patient. Mm -hmm. In real life, a, a GP gets to see a patient for 10 or 15 minutes if he's lucky. Mm -hmm. And so decisions that might work in a research program will be disastrous, very often will be disastrous in primary care, especially in terms of overdiagnosis. And experts in the field are very much worried about missing a, a given patient, not yeah. having diagnosis. They never worry about the possible mislabeling and overdiagnosis and the, the subsequent overtreatment. They worry, oh, we're not doing enough treatment. We need to be getting our treatments out there more. When in real life, especially in America, much more so than other countries, we, mm -hmm. the average cost per year for medical care in the U.S. is between eleven and twelve thousand dollars. In most of the rest of the world, it's half that. We're spending mm -hmm. twice as much on healthcare as the rest of the world, and we have lousy, lousy outcomes. Mm -hmm. Part of this is the pricing, because of monopoly pricing, things cost more here. But part of it is because we do a lot of unnecessary testing and treatment not just in psychiatry, but across the board in, in medicine. And the reason we do this is that, aside from the, the um, for-profit aspect of this, is that the specialties have been given too much control over the diagnostic system that gets people into their specialty and over the treatments that are provided afterwards. Maybe talk a little bit about how disorders over time have gained official status within the DSM uh, you write in your book a little bit about that and that some of it seems to be a little bit less scientifically rigorous uh, than one would expect. Well, I think the way I would put it is that anything in the DSM that can possibly be misused will, will almost definitely be misused. If there's a financial incentive or service incentive, if, if the legal system can find ways of twisting the system, it will. So that the over time things that make it into the DSM that may be very valuable in their place go grow outside their place and become, in some instances, for some people, much more harmful than helpful. A great example is, is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Mm -hmm. This didn't exist as a, a clinical entity in, until um, DSM-3. It was the first time it was introduced with that label. There had been some research on, quotes minimal brain damage, terrible title. ADHD, as it was originally conceived, made great sense for those kids who almost from birth were hyperactive, had difficulty following instructions, uh, got into all sorts of trouble, banged themselves into walls, mm. couldn't concentrate in school. And it, it, it used well, uh, Keith Connors, the father of this diagnosis, said that maybe 2 or 3% of the population of children would get a diagnosis of ADHD. And amongst that 2 or 3%, a certain proportion could be handled with psychosocial measures. Uh, a certain proportion would outgrow it, just watchful waiting would be good. Mm -hmm. But for, for some, medication would be needed. And he was the top researcher on the medication for ADHD. He died a couple of years ago heartbroken because a diagnosis that made sense for 2 or 3% of the population was now being given to, to 11 or 12% mm -hmm. of kids. Tremendous inflation of, of the concept, partly because for all of the DSM diagnoses, there's no clear boundary between meeting the criteria and not meeting the criteria. Right. But depending on how one interprets the criteria, depending on the care with which the assessment is done, is it done in one 10-minute session in a pediatrician's office, or is it done over weeks and months so that people can, can judge the kid in all sorts of different situations, judge whether there's sufficient distress or impairment to qualify for a diagnosis, judge whether over time it gets better on its own. The diagnosis that was very useful when it's given to 2 to 3% of the kids becomes very harmful when it's given to 11 or 12% of the kids. Now, you'll have boosters from the ADHD community. You'll have experts in the field, people who give conferences, who will say, this is great. We've gone from terribly underdiagnosing ADHD 3%, right. 
Now yeah. we're finally getting out there. Our word has been heard and we're able to do so much more good. The boosters for any diagnosis are always conflicted, usually financially, always conflicted intellectually or emotionally for their pet diagnosis. And they don't realize the harms that are done to those kids who are mislabeled. Mm-hmm. And the argument for ADHD is particularly clear cut because there have been about 10 studies in, in, in different countries with, with the tens of millions of, page, of kids. And it turns out that the best predictor of which kid in a classroom will get the diagnosis of ADHD is the kid's birthday. Right. The January. The youngest, yeah. The youngest kid in the class is in some cases almost twice as likely to get the diagnosis of ADHD as the uh, oldest kid in the class, which means that we're taking class chaos, a systems problem for education, and we're identifying the most vulnerable, immature kid in the class. And we're saying he has a mental disorder. He has no mental disorder. He's just younger. He's right. going to outgrow it. In another six months, he's going to be you know, at the point yeah. that the oldest kid in the class is in. But we're declaring it a mental disorder. And then amazingly, we're giving that kid medication. About more than half the kids who get the diagnosis get medication. We're treating immaturity with a pill. So this yeah. is an example of several things. One, experts can't be trusted making the final calls on where to set thresholds for mental disorder. You need their input, but you can't trust them with the final call. It also illustrates that it's so easy to take social problems and identify the individual as the kind of bearer, the, the sacrifice for the social problem, give him the diagnosis rather than identify the classroom as, as the issue. That we need to restrict mental disorder to the realms where it does best and, and avoid the temptation to be using mental disorder labels all over the place. When there's a mass murder, the first thing people jump on is he must have been mentally ill. The NRA would be very eager to get him a gun the day before he uses it to kill 10 people. But the minute the murder happens, the mass murder happens, he must be mentally ill because people aren't mentally ill never abuse guns. So in the U.S., we have 400 million guns for 330 million people. The guns are military grade, they're ubiquitous, and yet we are not addressing the the gun problem. We're blaming the mass murderers having a mental illness with Trump. There was a a movement to get Trump out of office based on the fact that he's mentally ill. Trump is an evil person. Mm -hmm. He does terrible things. He's very dangerous. But that doesn't make him mentally ill. And when we say that Trump is mentally ill, when we give him that excuse in a way for his terrible behavior, we're stigmatizing all the people who do have mental disorder, most of whom are well-meaning, well-intentioned, good people, by castigating them with guilt by association with Trump. We shouldn't be using mental illness labels in societal situations where we don't like the person's behavior because most bad behavior is not mental illness. We need to keep the definitions as narrow as possible and the use of medication even more carefully uh, monitored. Most people with a mental disorder on the mild end will do much better with psychotherapy than they will with medication. We should be reserving the medication for people who have the severe end of of mental disorders. And the labels themselves should be used sparingly with the awareness that labeling someone can be a wonderful moment in a person's life. I've Mm -hmm. seen hundreds and hundreds of patients who felt understood for the first time when they got the diagnosis. It helped explain to them symptoms that previously seemed impossible to understand. It helped them feel that they weren't uniquely damned. It forms an empathic relationship with the person doing doing the evaluation. And it's a, it's a great moment because now we know, oh, you have this problem. This is the likely prognosis. These are the treatments. If you handle this well, you're going to have a wonderful life. And there's a very good chance that we're going to be able to get rid of these symptoms. On the other hand, a diagnosis that's done in 10 minutes by someone who has a little training that um, is listening to drug company salespeople who is um, not able to really explain in a way that helps the person understand that there's great hope in getting a diagnosis. A carelessly done, inaccurate diagnosis can haunt someone for life. And I think it's very important that it's very easy to get a diagnosis or give a diagnosis. It's very yeah. hard to get one erased. And yeah. a bad diagnosis leads to bad treatment, to stigmatization, and can haunt a person for life. So I, I say diagnoses should be written in pencil. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is always underdiagnosing. It's very easy to upgrade the diagnosis as we learn more about the patient. It's almost impossible to erase it once it's been established. And, and maybe talk a little bit about the stepped care approach towards getting to a diagnosis, because I've often heard you say, and, and I'd like to talk about this a bit more. One of my concerns is just around how primary care physicians have become the de facto psychiatrists of our time with inadequate training and time to really understand if a person has a, a, a severe or or even moderate mental illness or if they're just having a bad bad day or series of days. So maybe talk through, I, I want to, I guess I'll parse out the, the primary care piece, but talk through how you see stepped care in terms of getting to a diagnosis for someone uh, versus how you see it being deployed today generally. Accurate diagnosis done empathically takes time. It takes time in each individual meeting and it takes time over weeks and sometimes even months. Uh, Watchful waiting um, is the, in many instances, the very best uh, evaluation technique and treatment technique. And it's in our current system, partly because of the pressures on, on clinicians, especially primary care doctors, to have a diagnosis in order to get paid there's very little time to do an evaluation that can leave the questions up in the air until we have more information. Um, usually people get to us or to the primary care doctor on the very worst day of their life. And if you just wait for a couple of weeks and um, see what how it evolves, you see tremendous improvement. Mm-hmm. Some of this is probably placebo effect. Some of this is probably regression to the mean. People go back to where they were before they got stressed. But if you start a pill on that first day, the person will misconstrue what's causing the change, won't realize it's a tincture of time, and will instead think it's the pill that was important. And the pills are very hard to stop. They're very hard to stop in part because once you've gotten an effect and you don't know whether it's the pill or not, you're not going to want to play with that and, yeah. and go off the pill that may have been helpful. Also hard because all of the psychiatric medications have withdrawal symptoms, not in every patient. It depends on the medication, the length of time they've been on it, the dosage they've been on it. But most of the pills are capable of causing withdrawal symptoms. If a person stops a pill, especially if they do it too abruptly, and pills should be always stopped slowly, better over months than over weeks and under under medical supervision. But once they stop the pill, usually too fast, have some symptoms of withdrawal, they'll misinterpret those symptoms as being a recurrence uh, or an extension of their original problem. So putting a person on a medication should be a very carefully thought out uh, experience for both the clinician and for the patient. shouldn't be done casually. In real life, it's usually done in the first visit. The primary care doctors, not their fault, are given way too heavy a caseload, way too few minutes per person. Uh, The average time, actually FaceTime with a patient is now under 10 minutes in the U.S. Uh, Lots of record keeping all jumbled up into a 15-minute schedule where they're going to have four patients an hour. Uh, They don't have time to really get to know their patients. Hippocrates said it's much more important to know the patient who has the disease than the disease the patient has. The clinicians in the U.S. now don't have time to get to know their patients. The easiest way to get them out of the office, especially if patients have been primed as they used to be primed by TV ads, the easiest way to get them out of the office is to write a prescription. It takes much more time to explain to the person why it's better not to write a prescription this week, why we should watch this over time to give advice about ways they can deal with the symptoms in the short term. It takes more time to to do that. It takes more time to refer to psychotherapy. It takes the clinician no time to write a prescription. And so we've had a tremendous overuse of medication. In the U.S., 20% of the population takes a psychiatric pill on a regular basis, Mm. Uh, 20% of the population. And amongst women over 45, uh, a quarter of of those women are on an antidepressant. Mm -hmm. We have benzodiazepines are terrible medicines, but we have 4% of our population on benzodiazepines. Their worst effects are in the elderly, where they cause memory problems and falls and confusion and delirium. And 8% of our elderly are on an an anti-anxiety 
uh, benzodiazepine type drug. So the, the primary care doctors working under tremendous pressure, insurance companies don't give them the chance to really get to know their patients. And under these circumstances, they tend to very much overprescribe. 80% of psychiatric medications are prescribed by non-psychiatrists, 80%. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Okay, let me just ask you about that, because this, uh, I would say like five, 10 years ago, I would be naive to the fact that my primary care physician, if I were to ask him about me having anxiety, for example, I would make the assumption that he had a pretty strong understanding of how to diagnose and treat that. And so if he were to then say, you know what, there's this SSRI escitalopram that's fairly effective and I think it's going to work for you after five minute meeting, I'd go, okay, yeah, I trust that to be great. That's awesome. Um, the more you, the more, you know, the more you realize from my perspective, a, the primary care physician may or may not have a very solid foundational understanding of the drug or mental illness in general, based on their education, training, and ongoing professional development. And B, um, the SSRI itself has proven to be questionably effective against placebo anyways. And so I'm wondering how is it that, well, I, I, I know how, but maybe explain how is it that 20% of Americans, so if we're thinking 350, there's millions of Americans every day that are taking a pill in which, you know, 30 to 40% may perceive a benefit. A lot of it's placebo. There's a lot of side effects. How did we get here? And then do you see the numbers going to 40% or are we going to see a changing of the guard in terms of how we perceive these medications um, from the diagnosis or a prescription perspective? Well, part of the problem is, is DSM-3 made a fatal mistake. It, it lumped together under one category, major depressive disorder, uh, problems that were um, just normal sadness, mm -hmm. uh, grief, and the very most severe conditions in psychiatry. So if someone has a severe depression, it's a life-threatening um, experience. Right. Uh, the, the person is, is highly agitated, can't think straight, barely can move, um, has difficulty sleeping or eating, uh, can lose 30, 40, 50 pounds in a very short period of time, uh, very, very often can be delusional, and, and sometimes uh, highly suicidal, and even riskier for suicide as they begin to get better and have more energy. Severe depression is a, is a life emergency. It's mm. unmistakable. And severe depression has almost a zero placebo response rate. That some people get better with nine months of time, but they don't get better in response to, to placebo. Right. Such patients are almost never included in studies. They're too sick to be in studies. They're excluded. Mm -hmm. um, they definitely need either medication or ECT. There's no question in the world uh, that they will need either medication or ECT. And the arguments against treating them with medication and ECT are just completely foolish and, and by people who have no experience treating right. them. On the other hand, major depressive disorder at the mild end is often not major, not depressive, not disorder. And that under this one category, we swept together the most severe people, illnesses in the world, and people are having disappointments of everyday life mm -hmm. under one label. And the drug companies in the 80s capitalized on this by saying that major depressive disorder was always a chemical imbalance. Right. As if two experiences could be lumped together under one category and under this uh, rubric could always be and should always be treated with a pill. And they, they're no longer, drug companies are no longer interested in psychiatric drugs. They don't market them now yeah. and they don't do research on them because they've already run out of patents and there have been no new effective medicines in the last 60 years. Yeah. The medicines we've had ever since the 60s are Me Too drugs with slightly different side effects. Yeah. And so since there's no profit involved, they no longer advertise as, as vividly as they once did. But for a while there, every third commercial on TV was a, a psychiatric medication. And they sold the culture and the idea that psychiatric problems and even the problems of everyday life are inherently brain diseases and chemical imbalances that you could never cure the ill without giving a pill. 
we, we need to have a much more nuanced, this goes back to your question about step diagnosis and step treatment, a much more nuanced um, way of understanding uh, mental disorder with the realization that the very severe mental disorders require a great deal of intervention, including medication. Mm-hmm. But the, the milder end, just watchful waiting and um, patience and advice and psychotherapy will be a lot more effective. And to not jump to the 10-minute diagnosis and the 10-minute, 30-second pill writing, prescription writing phase of the first visit, but rather to see um, the evaluation stage as being a crucial moment in a person's life. You wouldn't buy a house after 10 minutes. Right. You wouldn't buy a car after 10 minutes. Why should you buy a psychiatric diagnosis and maybe a lifetime of pill consumption after 10 minutes? That the decision to make a psychiatric diagnosis is a life-changing one for many people, often for the better, but sometimes for the worse. The decision to take medication can lead to wonderful effects if the medication is really necessary, but to very harmful side effects with no gain if it's not necessary. And no decision this consequential in a person's life should ever be made casually by the clinician or by the patient. And I think if, if uh, for listeners who are more on the patient side of things, it, it's important to be an informed consumer. It's mm-hmm. important not to make the assumption that you might have made 10 years ago with your primary care doctor that if he says, take this antidepressant, you should take it. To always be an informed consumer, the stuff on the internet is sometimes wonderful, sometimes completely misleading. Yeah. It's very hard to winnow the, um, the misinformation from the the valuable information, but it, it's important to, before you begin a psychiatric medicine, to thoroughly become informed about its benefits and risks, to make sure that the diagnosis makes sense to you. It's important to refer to the criteria and see if they really do describe you because someone after 10 minutes can miss the boat completely. Uh, if your family are good observers, to discuss it with them as well, friends. The, the, the decision to, to, to accept a psychiatric diagnosis and to begin a pill should be taken with as much care as you would, I think, buying a house or a car, because it can have even more consequences in the long run. Could, could we maybe, I, I'd like to get back to um, the DSM-4 and then the, the controversy with the DSM-5, but there's a lot to unpack there. And I'd just like maybe to ask you to, to comment a bit on a couple of things. One, one is ECT, which is I think quite misunderstood in terms of efficacy for the severely depressed. Um, maybe just speak to your your perspective on if you had a family member, a friend, loved one who had uh, major depression, uh, suicidal. If you would recommend ECT as a course of treatment, and how over time has that proven out to be effective? Well, I think that if it were me and I had severe depression, it would be my first choice for me, without doubt, because the results are quicker, uh, much more complete uh, than they are with medication. And um, it also, it, people have been medication non-respondents before have a good chance of being able to respond to medication after ECT. I think I don't recommend it as a first treat line treatment for right. severe depression for others, because there is a great deal of controversy about it. The, the literature to me is pretty clear often misunderstood. If you select severely ill people, and they're the ones who get ECT, it's not easy to get ECT in America. It's not as if everyone's going out with machines trying to, it's not like medication where the easiest thing is to write a prescription. You know, getting a patient to agree to ECT and, and having the facilities to, to deliver it and having the anesthesiologist sufficiently hard that we probably do way too little rather than too much. But in any case, the, um, the results are usually something like 75% response rate within a couple of weeks for severe depression. And that seems, when you see it, it's miraculous because these are people who have not responded. You don't get to the point of getting ECT in the United States unless you've not responded for a pretty long period of time for, with a lot of different meds and with very severe symptoms. And then after all this non-response, you suddenly in two weeks see, see the person wake up as if from a, a horrible nightmare. The um, results don't always stick so that of the 75 or 80% who have an initial result, there will be some relapses, but often the person who never responded to medication before will respond to the medication after the ECT, Uh, things change. Now, in terms of the memory loss, it definitely creates a memory loss 
for a period usually of, of weeks or months before you start the ECT and weeks or months after for personal events. But if you look at the cognitive functioning of the individual, the person who received ECT after two or three months will actually have higher cognitive functioning than the person who didn't. Mm -hmm. So it creates a memory loss for the period around ECT, particularly painful because it's personal memories very often, but right. it actually improves cognitive functioning over the long haul. And people who complain a lot about the side effects of ECT don't take into account that the people who get it are in terrible shape when they start and without it will continue to be in terrible shape uh, and that the um, beneficial effects is so clear cut and established by literature that we shouldn't be saying ECT is a treatment for anything but severe depression, right. but it probably should be used much more for those people who are not responding to anything else. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, let's just go back maybe to the DSM-5 and um, if, you, if you don't mind just speaking to why you decided to be an outspoken critic of it and then Maybe where do we go from here um, in terms of the DSM five? And, and I, I understand it's a it's a working it's a working copy or whatever they call it. How do you see the future of that manual, for better or for worse? Well, I think that we we tried very hard with DSM four to squelch the the uh, diagnostic enthusiasm. We received ninety four suggestions for new diagnoses. And we included only two. Hmm. And we thought when we finished the work that what we did a pretty good job of, of uh, taming the beast. But it turned out that there were three decisions we made, all of them that made sense at the time, but all three backfired. We included a, a category called Asperger's that was the milder form of autism because the child psychiatrist told us that they had three times or four times as many kids who had mild symptoms of autism but still needed help as they had the classic severe form of autism. And we did a field trial on this. We were careful about it. And it made sense in the field trial that it expanded the, the concept of autism, but in a way that, that made clinical sense. What happened was a disastrous swelling of the ranks of the autistic because of careless diagnosis. Mm. Um, the number of kids who got the diagnosis increased by 40 times. Wow. after the introduction of DSM. And that's because all sorts of other problems were now shoehorned into autism. And kids who might be different but normal, uh, socially awkward maybe, a little too intellectual maybe, having um, some, some obsessions and restricted interests maybe, but not really out of the realm from normal, that they were now shoehorned under the spectrum, the autism spectrum. And this was done, I think, partly because of school services that if you got an, a diagnosis of autism, it would get you out of the chaotic 35-kid classroom that you were having trouble functioning in and into a, a much more personalized educational system. So the, the desire to help kids by giving them more school services, because it required autism as a diagnosis, labeled them in a way that can be very stigmatizing and in a way cheapened the diagnosis so that about half the kids might not get that same diagnosis on another visit. Mm. About uh, the reliability of the diagnosis was no longer high. Anytime that the, you're making a diagnosis on a condition that's closer to normal, at the fuzzy boundary with normal, you get less agreement. Mm. So kids who are being diagnosed with autism might be better in three months or might not have autism if they were seen by another evaluator, but they would then have the label often for life. And so we felt that that had been, um, we'd made a decision that made sense on the information we had, but we had been derelict in not predicting that it might be misused in the real world the way it was. We hadn't considered that the school services element would explode the diagnosis. We made it somewhat easier to get the diagnosis of attention deficit to allow for kids who are inattentive without being hyperactive, especially girls, it's more common in girls. But we didn't weren't aware of the fact when we when we did this, the, the drugs that were used to treat ADHD cost pennies. The Ritalin had been around for 40 years, not on patent, cost pennies. The right. drug companies came up with Me Too drugs that were different enough to get a patent, to be made very expensive, to advertise like crazy, magazines and TV ads on everyone had ADHD. And the 
changes we made were just part of this, but it helped to encourage people to think that ADHD was terribly underdiagnosed that led to the explosion that we discussed earlier. We introduced a diagnosis called bipolar two right. for people who didn't have full-blown manic episodes, but did have what we called hypomanic episodes where they would become slightly high, but not manic because people like that tended to sort in their family relationships that their families tended to be more bipolar than unipolar. And we were afraid that if they weren't identified and received antidepressants without coverage for mood disorder, they would have rapid cycling, irritability, and might get worse because of the antidepressant. Mm -hmm. What we failed to account for was that three years after DSM-4 appeared, the drug companies got um, FDA approval for using antipsychotics for uh, and, and um, so anti-epileptic drugs for bipolar disorder. And they started advertising like crazy, going to doctor's offices. And pretty soon, instead of bipolar disorder being one-sixth of all mood disorder, it was, it was one-third. That wow. The ratio doubled of bipolar. Everyone was bipolar for a while. So I was very much aware of the fact that we could do things, and we worked very hard at not adding new diagnoses or lowering thresholds for old ones in a way that might lead to more diagnosis. That was our main goal. We carefully weeded out yep. 92 of the 94 proposals. These were introduced for good reasons at the time, and they still led to disasters. That made me aware that DSM-5, which had the opposite approach of giving the experts an open book to make creative changes to um, perhaps have a paradigm shift in diagnosis, that that would be dangerous. And the DSM-5 did suggest and did include a number of diagnoses that I thought would further increase the diagnostic inflation. And, and so I guess, and the DSM-5 had very much a biological bent to it in trying to take the neuroscience of the day and make it more part of the diagnoses than perhaps we were ready for. Is that accurate to say? Well, they tried at the beginning. It was really silly. They had a series of conferences. They brought together the best neuroscientists in the world. Their hope was that they could therefore include biological tests as part of the diagnosis. The, the holy grail has been to get closer to the rest of medicine where you're not making impressionistic diagnoses based on symptoms, but rather you have a biological test that seems to give greater authenticity and clarity and, and uh, reliability to diagnosis. So for 40 years, there's been a search for, uh, you know, how, what, what are the markers for schizophrenia? Can we find them on brain imaging? Can we find them on genetics? And it turns out that we, we can't. Mm -hmm. What we discussed before, that there have been, you know, thousands of studies at this point that show slight differences in the brains of people with severe mental disorders, but never in a way that was clear enough to be diagnostic. And the same for genetics. There's no way of making a diagnosis of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, any of the disorders, based on this lab test or this genetic right. test. So that's it. Do you see, yeah. though, I think in your book, which was written in 2013, um, was it Alzheimer's that you mentioned within five years there may be some sort of marker or, or it might have been dementia? For you? The thing with Alzheimer's is the perfect example. If there's any psychiatric disorder that's neurological and going to be described in biological terms, it would be Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. There's been research on Alzheimer's intensely done for the last uh, 45 years. And so far, we don't have a biological marker for it and we don't have a treatment for it. Uh, I started asking, I began work on the DSMs in the late 70s, and I began asking the experts on Alzheimer's then, when do you think we'll have a biological marker? When do you think we'll have a treatment? And in the late 70s, the optimist said, a biological marker maybe in five years, a treatment in 15 years. The <laughs> pessimist stretched that out 10 years further. And periodically over the years, I keep asking the experts on Alzheimer's, when will we have a biological marker? When will we have a treatment? It's the exact same number now, the five years, 15 years, as it was in the late 70s. So the horizon keeps shifting. The goalposts keep getting, getting further and further away. And the, um, the point of this is, I think, that we, we can't expect a magical solution through technology. It's not as if there's going to be, if there was going to be a breakthrough in psychiatry towards a biological diagnostic system, it would have been Alzheimer's. 45 years intensive research and the markers we have still don't define a patient population. The 
many people who have the biological markers that are associated with Alzheimer's don't have Alzheimer's. And many of the people who do have Alzheimer's don't have those biological mar markers. So that it's not a diagnostic test in that condition in the manual that would most likely be uh, amenable to biological testing. The idea that we're going to have a marker for schizophrenia seems completely absurd. There are 250 genes associated with schizophrenia, but none of them sufficiently responsible enough so that we can have any biological test result that will uh, help us to, to make a diagnosis. People are now working on developing patterns of genetic abnormalities that might be risk factors for each of the psychiatric disorders. So if we realize that the 200 genes aren't going to lend themselves to a simple answer, what causes schizophrenia, what causes mood disorder, could it be that if we look at a pattern amongst those genes that we could find a risk factor? But it turns out that if you do all the genetic studies you could possibly want to do, spend a fortune doing it, you get less information about the patient than if you ask them, is there anyone in your family who had schizophrenia? Wow. That the simple clinical question is more powerful as a predictor now than all of the fancy studies that are being done. And while we do these fancy studies, instead of asking the question, is there someone in your family with schizophrenia, we're not using any of the funding to study how can we make the lives better for people who have this condition. And we're terribly underfunding the clinical care. Uh, yeah, I'd like to just talk about that briefly around how we deploy research funding. Before we do that, I want to take a break. Janssen Pharmaceuticals is a sponsor. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, I, you mentioned in your book um, just around how we can just use um, NIMH as an example, but we can extrapolate this around the world around how we allocate resources for uh, research funding. And, you know, obviously tens of billions of dollars over the years have gone towards neuroscience, uh, genetics, biological, psychiatry. I'm wondering how you would think about, you know, if you had, if you were the czar of deploying funds for, for research around mental health, how would you, how would you cut up the pie? I mean, obviously I think there's a place for um, research around neuroscience and so forth, but how would you cut up the pie to optimize the uh, outcomes for patients, um, uh, patients' mental health? I think, first of all, it, the, the neuroscience and genetic research is a wonderful intellectual adventure. Yes. And it's helping us understand things that we never could have understood before on a scientific basis. It's, it's fun. Um, I'm not saying we shouldn't be funding the exploration yeah. of how the brain works or how genes work. But I am saying that there's no low-hanging fruit, that we can't expect any of that to help a patient. The idea, every grant will say, if we figure out this relationship, it may solve the problem of diagnosing or treating the mental, given mental disorder, and it never does. So we should, having spent all this money and all this time and all this fancy equipment, make the intellectually honest appraisal that we need to be doing neuroscience and genetic research for their own good because it's part of the intellectual adventure of humans, but that the likely positive output in terms of patients having better lives will never happen. All this research, that single patient has been helped by all of that research. Meanwhile, things that actually do help patients are under-researched. Um, I was part of the committee um, at NIMH when it was funding psychotherapy in the early 80s that funded the work of Marshall Linehan and DBT that funded the, the work of Tim Beck and others on cognitive behavior therapy. Tens of millions of people have been helped by CBT and DBT, but the, it's impossible to get funding for that at this point. Right. Even more important, it's impossible, difficult to get funding for how do we get patients out of prison? How do we get patients into housing? Now, a lot of those issues, the serious issues that, that really haunt the field and, and haunt my when I look back at my career, how can I feel good about the career if when I started, people were in snake pit hospitals and at this point they're in jails or on the street? That wow. We have to devote our research dollars and our clinical dollars to getting patients out of prisons, to having crisis teams in the community, to, to finding decent housing. We have to see psychiatry in a more social context light that a very large percentage of the variants of who gets sick has to do with their socioeconomic standing. Um, suicide rates 
track best with economic insecurity and poverty and um, the disruption in the society. Psychiatry shouldn't see itself as mainly a researcher of biological causes and a purveyor of pills. It should see itself as having some shepherding responsibility in the society to ensure that people aren't subjected to the kinds of stresses that uh, provoke vulnerable to have severe psychiatric disorder, and that once people do have symptoms, there's a place to go. The way I put it is that the U.S. at this point, for, for many people, is the worst place in the world and maybe the worst place of all time to have a mental illness. Wow. Whereas Trieste in Italy and um, the psychiatric services in the Nordic countries um, and in many of the European countries, the best place ever to have had a psychiatric illness uh, and, and, and to get care and housing for it. And we're not going to solve this problem with brain research. We have to solve this problem with the kind of research that facilitates model programs to get patients who are living on the street or in prisons into decent housing and, and freely accessible care. Um. I was going to, uh, let me just, I want, I want to read a quote from, yeah, I want to read a quote from your, uh, from your book and um, ask you just a, a more broad societal question. And then uh, I know you got to go so we can, we can wrap things up. Um, it's the, the quote is around resiliency and, um, and I want to ask about our resilience as humans today. And so you say real psychiatric disorders require prompt diagnosis at, diagnosis and active treatment they don't get better by themselves and become harder to treat the longer they are allowed to persist in contrast the unavoidable everyday problems of life are best resolved through your natural resilience and the healing powers of time we are a tough species the successful survivors of tens of thousands of generations of resourceful ancestors who had to make their precarious daily living and avoid ever-present dangers far beyond our coddled imagining our brains and our social structures are adapted to deal with the toughest of circumstances. We are fully capable of finding solutions to most life's troubles without medical meddling, which often muddles the situation and makes it worse. Now, that quote in context with COVID-19 and, you know, headlines everywhere, tsunami of mental health, the hidden epidemic, maybe talk through if you feel like we are over-sensationalizing and I know that quote that you said was in 2013, so it wasn't in the context of today. I'm just wondering if you think what that quote represents remains true today and if we're over-sensationalizing um, the needs that the mental health care system are going to be burdened with as a result of all the stress that COVID has presented. Yeah, COVID's a very good example of what I was uh, thinking about. The, the people with severe mental illness are dying at twice the rate of the general population. So they live in conditions that are crowded on the street or in prisons, um, where um, it, it's easy to have, and nursing homes, very heavily represented in nursing homes. So super spreader events are most likely to hit the severely mentally ill. They also, even before COVID, died 15 to 20 years earlier than the general population. There's a combination of um, obesity and diabetes, so probably to some degree side effects of the medications, of smoking, of um, too little exercise, too little access to health care, difficulty mm -hmm. reporting symptoms, that this is a population that's uniquely vulnerable to die early. And what we've seen with COVID is that it's added to that risk factor. They're right. twice as likely to die from it. There's been almost no discussion of this. There have been a couple of studies, but almost no discussion. They should have been number one on the list for getting vaccination. Vaccination. We should have worried about what are, what's going to happen with all of the mentally ill in prisons and nursing homes. How do we protect them? Instead, there's been a tremendous research and media flurry of 30% of the population is now depressed because of COVID, because of uh, the loneliness of living in um, isolation, because of the anxiety about the illness and about loved ones about grief of losing loved ones. Mm -hmm. Now, no doubt in the world that the pandemic has created a tremendous global increase in distress amongst the general population. But in some ways, that distress should be seen as evolutionarily 
built into our reactions because mm-hmm. they were, it's adaptive. Yes. So people who are not scared of COVID are the ones running around without masks and hugging people and going to super spreader events. Being afraid, being anxious in a period where there's a lot of external threat is the normal response. It's not right. a, some mental disorder to be anxious during the, the era of COVID. It's the appropriate response to a very dangerous external situation. And the COVIDians are the ones, if you want, I would not create a COVIDian diagnostic category, but <laughs> the COVIDians are the ones who should be seen as having a disordered, evolutionarily maladaptive. Anyone now going to a, a party uh, with, with a, a wedding party with a thousand people or a, a, a Miami beach party and feeling that they're safe. I had a right. woman come up and hug me, someone I know who's a COVID idiot, come up and hug me this weekend, not wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. And I, I was absolutely dumbfounded by the foolishness of not being afraid that I might infect her. Yeah. If someone's feeling grief because they lost a loved one, that's not a mental disorder, that's normal. If someone's sad because they miss their friends, that's normal. If someone's worried about losing their job or their income and, and, and having a very insecure financial, fee, that's normal. So the increase in global distress is a very real thing. Yeah. It, it's a disturbing thing, and we should provide resources for it. So it's great that there were so many volunteers and much easier access for you to teletherapy to get psychotherapy than ever before. And I think teletherapy is here to stay in, in our field. But it shouldn't necessarily require someone to have a diagnosis before they access the services that help them with their distress. The distress is normal, but having services can be useful for dealing with normal stress. It shouldn't be that everyone who needs help is seen as mentally disordered. Yes, yeah, well, I think we might be conflating that in the media. Okay, last question. I have to ask this because you 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 subtweeted me because I sent out a um, I don't know what it was, but it had to do with psychedelics and the future of mental health care. And I think your comment, which I really liked, um, <laughs> even though it was counter to I think what my tweet was, all all that glitter is not gold. Um, essentially saying that all of this hype. Um, is is maybe just hype, but I just I'd I'd love to get your two minutes sure. thought. What is going on there? And if you see there being, I, I know we're still early days in the research piece of it, but do you see a future there for uh, tr- mental health treatment? Well, there's a lot of excitement in in the early '80s about the use of psychedelics in mental health treatment. The idea being that something that could cause such a dramatic effect in, in anyone might mm-hmm. be particularly helpful in people who are struggling with symptoms that might get them outside themselves and provide insights and experiences and, and just shake up the marbles in a way that might be useful. Um, the parallel concern is that with every intervention that has a good effect, you have to consider risks and unintended consequences. And with the psychedelics, there's been a tremendous excitement recently, partly because psychiatry is groping for answers. We've had the same, essentially the same drugs for 60 years. There's never been a more effective drug introduced in the last 60 years than the first ones we had. It's just a difference in side effects. We've learned a tremendous amount about how the brain works, but we can't do any better at providing medications that will change things. And there's a frustration in the field and I guess in, in the larger society, why don't we have better drugs? The impact of psychedelics has been studied only in very controlled environments with highly selected patients who get a tremendous amount of, of clinical support during the psychedelic experience. And that's how, as it should be, because you don't want your research study creating harms in, in the people who volunteer for them. Yeah. But what hasn't been considered, and to me is... Um, very important is the fact that every new treatment gets better results for the first uh, 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 patients than it does later on. So there's always this tremendous excitement about the new. It gets hyped. It's a, it's a new mechanism of the brain. It's going to have results that we've never had before. It's a breakthrough drug. There will always be much more enthusiasm for any new treatment, whether it's a psychotherapy or a medication at the beginning, than once we get to know it better. That the people who are hyping it are very alive to the benefits because they have financial and intellectual and emotional attachments to the treatment. They'll be very blind to the possible risks. And ketamine is the best example. Yeah. 
Ketamine may be a very good drug for some people who've been resistant to other medications in controlled settings um, like the research. But the treatments are very expensive. And the ketamine clinics that have opened up around the country are big money makers. Yep. Um, so you have to wonder, wonder about motives. And most people are not going to be able to afford them. If you read the hype in the newspapers that ketamine cures depression or that this or that other psychedelic cures PTSD, and you can't afford to go to one of the fancy clinics that's going to charge thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, what's the best thing you can do? You go out in the street and buy it for, for tens of dollars. Right, right. And what I'm afraid of is that the even if the treatments turn out to be better than I expect, they will be under controlled conditions that will have the unintended consequences of people treating themselves with street drugs. And that's doubly dangerous. Now, first, it's dangerous because you never know what you're buying on the street, that fentanyl is ubiquitous on the street. Um, whatever the label of the drug you're buying, it may have fentanyl in it. The number of overdoses from fentanyl is fentanyl is like 50 or 100 times more powerful than heroin. And it's created a tremendous glut, a real pandemic of overdoses. We had more overdoses during the COVID year than any year before. Uh, the availability of fentanyl will, will be increasing over time. And anytime you buy a street drug, you're, it's like Russian roulette. Plus the fact that I've seen terrible side effects from ketamine overdoses, people uh, jumping from roofs. Um, one guy um, took out his eye during the, uh, wow. ketamine can create a kind of depersonalization, an intense out of body kind of experience in which people will do really stupid, very harmful things. So I wouldn't want someone, say ketamine is a really good drug under the controlled circumstances, but I wouldn't want people hearing that, oh, it's a good drug under controlled circumstances. I'll go out and buy some special K and see what happens. Right, the, right. That risk factor you're never hearing about with all the enthusiasm. Yeah, no, well said. Thank you. Well, I, I know we're at time here. So um, I just want to say, doctor, thank you for all the work you've done for the past 45 years in the field. And I've really enjoyed listening to you and reading you and, and for you to take the time to, to chat with me has been a real treat for me. So, so thank you very much. Me too. Really good questions. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye -bye.